Let us pray. Father God, as we come before your presence this morning, we call upon you to bless us through the power of the Spirit. Let us taste and see from your word that our Lord is good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is it all right? It's okay. Is it okay or no? All right. Good. Sorry, I had heard my microphone might have issues. Good. It works, Kurt. Good. Want it to work for Kurt <laughs> and for Ken and for others. I thought of one of the descriptions C.S. Lewis used for hell this week. He used to describe hell as a place in which the doors are locked from the inside. That God doesn't actually have to lock people into hell, but in their stubborn defiance of God and their desire to resist him, even as God's mercy is pulled away and judgment comes, those individuals cast into judgment will not actually reach out to the God who declares, I am the door who declared in John 10, 7, that he is the door, and that anyone who enters by me will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And I thought about C.S. Lewis's illustration of hell this week when considering this passage, because the last time we were in this passage, we really focused on the Israelites. Through in this initiation of Passover, they they took a period of time and they lived alongside this spotless lamb. Then the lamb was sacrificed. Then they applied the blood of the lamb to their households. And then they stayed inside. They stayed inside because as they were commanded to by God's word, they stayed faithful in the dark night of death. And in holding fast to their, his word, they were saved. And yet our text today talks quite a bit about all those Egyptians who would still not relent and their utter refusal of God. And some might be tempted to say, oh, that's not fair. It really is that hardened Pharaoh who's responsible for this. It's sort of like a blame shifting. I bet you there, there are people who will eternally bemoan in hell and blame shift the leaders. I, I bet you there are people who will blame shift those in authority. Oh, that's what just those in authority decided to do. Why are we being cast in with their lot? And this passage today is a very convicting passage to those who want to convince themselves that the actions of governments, that the actions of world leaders, that the actions of those in authority, houses of authority, even if it's Washington, D.C., or if it's Harrisburg, or wherever, that if we are justifying and just going along, basically to get along, this don't read this passage. Because all the way from Pharaoh to the prisoner in the dungeon— those who would not heed the word of God, those who would not be covered in the blood of the spotless lamb, those who were not obedient to his word, they were judged. They were judged on this day. 
The reality is, for the vast majority of Egypt, though we've seen the conversion starting in chapter 9 of some of the Egyptian people, for the majority, they didn't care about Pharaoh's policies enough to be moved by them, to reject his ruling over them, to reject his pretend authority of being a godlike figure in their midst. They were happy enough with the decrees of a hellish leader, and they never thought a hellish leader was a good enough reason to seek a heavenly one. A lot of people in this world think being lukewarm and neutral is a good thing. It's a good Christian practice. But the Bible, upon closer examination, really doesn't share this idea with us. And so as we begin this passage, it's a scary passage for those who want to say things like, well, that was just the law of the land. Well, that's just what those politicians in D.C. said. Well, that's just what those politicians in Harrisburg voted on. Well, that's just what the news anchor told me. If you think who you are today and what you believe today is allowed to be defined by them, and you're allowed to be indifferent to God's clear instructions in his word, this is a most frightful passage to read indeed if you have ears to hear it. Because there is a penalty for not honoring God as Lord and giving that authority to someone else in the things that are the Lord's. And every household, and I do mean every household, on the night of Passover in Egypt, and in the land of Goshen, had, had the consequence of death due to their rebellion against God. Every household had to face death that night. And maybe you're saying, but wait, the Hebrews were spared. That doesn't work. No, it does work. Remember at the start of the plagues, the Hebrews, when they started to face adversity, as Moses had come in chapter 5, they were more concerned at the beginning of Pharaoh's opinion of them than God's. Don't you think that's happening in our own land? From sea to shining sea? In our own day, religious leaders are more worried about the spirit of the age than the spirit that poured out the word of God? That people are more worried about the opinion, opinions of civic leaders and being on the right side of history as those civic leaders define? than the opinion of God? And haven't we also, in the course of our own lives, even if we are faithful, also too been guilty at times of being caught up in that tsunami wave? Moments where our faith was wanting at critical hours. And so once again, the Israelites had to put a spotless, blameless, blemishless lamb to death in their community and partake of it in their homes. Every home had a consequence of death for utter rebellion to God. But the reality was, over the course of these plagues, over the course of the judgments, the, the believer and the unbeliever, while they continued both to become more aware of God's reality, they had very different responses as the tension, as the drama of the plagues, has continued to unfold. As the chaos began to envelop those set apart by God, they held those who are the Lord's held more firmly to the faith that they have received by his word. While others, their souls, 
became ever more callous to the point where in our passage today, even the death of the firstborn, even the one, the death of the one who was most important in the ancient household would not move them to repentance, but rather it would just further confirm their desire to utterly reject this God. Or another way to put it, like C.S. Lewis put it, they were like an individual who locks the door to God from the inside. From Pharaoh to the prisoner in the dungeon, every household that didn't heed the word of God and apply the blood of the spotless lamb and follow his word, our passage tells us they were utterly devastated that night. Every household that trusted their political leaders and the gods of their own making were devastated in that night of judgment. Egypt became a nation that learned the price that nations pay when they continue to hate God and his word. And Pharaoh wakes up on this night of his grand humiliation. He's not a watchman in the dark night, but a sleeper. And the Pharaoh who pretends to be a god must summon the two men he threatened with death the last time he saw them. And he must declare an unconditional surrender. And Pharaoh, who began his conflict in chapter 5, verse 2, by arrogantly saying, Who is this Yahweh? Believing it was a made-up God. And refused to believe the God of the Hebrews, who said he came because he heard the cries of his people, now has to hear the cries of his own people, Egyptians, that he was not able to protect them from, because he is no God. He is no true authority under heaven. Pharaoh had nothing. The Pharaoh had no way to save. Pharaoh's reaction in the Hebrew is even halting. It's almost spasmatic in the Hebrew. Get up. Leave. Go worship. Take your cattle too, according to your words, and bless me too. Every precondition, every hint of control is gone from Pharaoh's words. And he even ends up referring to Israel as a nation, as a national power in this encounter. And sometimes people wonder and speculate about Pharaoh's last request. Did Moses bless him? The fact is, this is not the last we'll hear from Pharaoh. And so even though he asked for a blessing, Again, he is the perfect example of what C.S. Lewis is talking about. Because Pharaoh will emerge from this dark night of judgment, hating God and his people even more, and still pursuing them. The door of hell is locked from the inside for committed godless leaders. And even great national tragedies for them are not a time to relent. Actually, it's a Time to double down and hate God even more. This was true also for the vast majority of Egyptians, as we can see in verse 32. Instead of wanting to follow and, and worship the one and only true God, they would rather send out this people of this God. Because if not, we shall all be de dead, they said. While almost all the Egyptians for a little while were spared for a little while of, of being confronted with the inconvenience of this God, 
Maybe they received a few more days or weeks or months or years of ignorant bliss. Eventually, the time comes for us all. The flood waters of mortal death, an eternal Red Sea of judgment for those who refuse him. It falls upon us all who will not receive him, any who would not receive him, though others are saved by the same waters, as we'll see later. So their relief was temporary. But for a little while longer, after the consequences of this night had come and gone, they could pretend a little while longer that their Pharaoh was a god amongst many gods and try as best they could to forget about the real god who judged their household for their refusal to heed his word. And so they quickly kicked them out. And in obedience to a promise that God had first made Abraham back in Genesis 15, as the Hebrews asked, the Egyptians handed over all their wealth as the Hebrews asked for it. We actually know there's an irony here. The Passover falls right before the time uh, in the Egyptian calendar, which was tax season. So in one sense, this year's taxes would not go to Pharaoh. This year's taxes would go to God's people. And so the Israelites have been rescued. And now they've received riches, not from their own strength, but by the power of God. And they are leaving the city of Ramses with a dignity as victors. Yet in this great moment of triumph and deliverance, I think it's fairly safe to biblically say Israel must have believed for a fleeting moment all their trials were behind them. That happy days were here again. That as they moved from one status, being citizens of Egypt, into being citizens of God and his kingdom, that there would be no hardship before them. And yet we know the larger story. We know that actually in this transfer of them being citizens of Egypt to being citizens in one sense of the wilderness, headed towards the promised land, that there were actually great many hardships to follow. Even the gold and silver they have been blessed with by God on the way out of Egypt, they, they have such an idolatry in their heart that those same items of gold and silver come to make long before it makes the tabernacle of the Lord come to make a golden calf a false god of worship. And haven't we spent money on a great many idols and struggled at times to use our funds more faithfully? And there will be this persistent grumbling that will arise as Israel emerges from the evil that is Egypt. We in the church are grumblers at times, ever forgetful of the death of the Lamb and the death of the firstborn that saved them, ushered in by their God, we can often give in to cynicism and worry and doubts and despair and fear. Oh, how terrible it is when we forget about casting our worries on God. And we forget about the good news of the blood of the Lamb which saves and the sacrifice of the firstborn of all creation which can free us from our sins. But the sins... The sorrows, the pains, it can follow us out into the wilderness. Now, 
Let me take a moment to talk about this number. It is funny how many individuals scoff at this number. They say this number is unbelievable. We know that as Israel entered the land, it was 70 people. And people say, you can't turn 70 people into 600,000 men, which would roughly be two to three million people in a mere 430 years. And I have to laugh because and we even sing about them this Lord's Day. Do you know what happened 402 years ago? Roughly 403. Who landed on Plymouth Rock? Pilgrims. Do you know how many descendants? If we're really concerned about 430 years and and 3 million descendants. You know how many descendants are related to the pilgrims today in the United States? You can Google this. Check my, check my math. 35 million. 35 million. If you think, and, and they only had on that boat 26 families. So if you don't believe that 12 families over 430 years can create 3 million, I don't know what you do with the pilgrims. Because those 26 families created 35 million. Birth rates don't lie. I, I, I'm going to void the, the side sidebar, but this is one of the reasons why the flood, well, you know, in those smarter circles, believing in the flood is, is foolish. I like to ask people, okay, what do you think was the great extinction event? a little over 4,000 years ago, because the birth rates do not add up. And so the Word of God makes clear God's people are free, and not only have they plundered the Egyptian wealth and animals, but in verse 38 we can see that they've even plundered some of the people, some of the households. A good way to, to translate the mixed multitude word in verse 38 in the Hebrews to see is God said he brought out a riffraff of people. We're a riff, riffraff of, as well. I didn't know that'd be sung a, such a tongue twister for me. But remember, God had promised Abraham not to be just the father of a nation, but the father of many nations. And so not only were the original 12 households found in this number, but also there was a greater number with them of the riffraff. God is about to bring in a new set of people. And when you bring in a new set of people, you all of a sudden have to ask yourself, okay, God has already told us, and we've seen in past lessons where God has told us this Passover needs to be remembered continually. It needs to be remembered forever forever. And so what do we do with the riffraff? What do we do with these people who aren't Hebrews, but they're still being identified with Israel? And God makes something clear in this passage. He makes clear that, well, they must be circumcised. There's that word again, that embarrassing word circumcised. And as I like to stress with that word, it's really about who you are privately. The, the Bible goes on to make clear the true circumcision is the circumcision of the heart. Who can partake of this Passover? Those who have been circumcised in the heart. Those who believe. Those who trust. Those who cling to his word. 
But also, let me be clear, there was also a, a real, it's, it's not just a spiritual reality. In the Old Covenant, there was a real, actual implication of circumcision. That actually, your faith required the head of the household and his sons after them to make a blood offering in an ancient form of surgery where it wasn't the most pleasant thing. Who are those of true faith? Those who, in their commitment, they have a new heart. They have a changed heart. In, in, in private, they strive to be those who are faithful to the Lord and also those who are able to make great sacrifice unto the Lord. God changes those who are his. And so he was making sure that for every household that understood in faith, that every household that took that spotless lamb and applied, applied the lamb's blood to their home, forsaking the world and heeding his word, and they stayed inside the household of faith throughout the night, throughout the dark night of death, and didn't leave. He made sure that death could not touch them. That was really his assurance that he gave to them. You see, while Pharaoh was caught asleep on this night, look what verse 42 says about Passover. It says it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the, kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout the generations. What is being said there? What is being said there is that God in the Passover was trying to give his people a greater assurance. God in his Passover was trying to say that even the cries of death, when you hear them, when you hear them and you understand what's happening in the Passover, they won't hit you the same way. They will overwhelm your household in the same way. It's not that they don't have suffering in their own right, on their own night, on Passover. It required the life of a spotless lamb. But still, God's night watch of Passover had a promise that death would not strike their households in the same way. Those who were faithful to God, those who were faithful to apply the lamb's blood on their households and to heed his word, they would not receive death in the same manner. They would have a vicarious substitute in the lamb. And so our God was keeping a faithful watch in the darkness. I couldn't help but think about the night where Jesus was betrayed and his disciples could not keep their eyes open in fidelity and faithfulness, but the Lord Jesus could. And why did he do so? He did so because he loved us, so that even when times are hard and we're surrounded by cries of despair, and even if the hour of death seems to be upon us, we have a hope that God will honor his word and death will never overtake us. 
death as it's poured out on the land is a means of deliverance for the faithful. Death no longer has a sting. Death actually is a great liberation. Or a more blue-colored way to say this, God works the graveyard shift of life too. While the pharaohs of this world, that often the world runs to for protection, they will be asleep when death falls upon the land. That's what God wanted his people to remember in the Passover. Remember how when the spotless lamb was slain and the firstborn died, God could liberate his people from the bondage of this world. And when you understand that, you begin to understand the closing verses of this chapter when God declares that no foreigner can be a partaker of the Passover lamb. Who can benefit from the night watch of the Lord who protects you from de even death itself in the darkened hour? Who can partake? Those who have been circumcised. Those who have received Christ. So, one other thing. Let's take notice of the lamb. Here Moses makes it a point to say that even a bone of the lamb should not be broken. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, it begins with the declaration in chapter 1, verse 29, of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And later, John remarks about the crucifixion and says in 1936, not one of Jesus' bones were broken. Basically, the Apostle John was begging the reader to understand that his Gospel is all about telling you Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And even more, Jesus is the Messiah who in Genesis 3.15, we learn would be bruised, but not broken as he crushed the head of the serpent, the truest serpent, the greatest Pharaoh, Satan himself. And all those who understand that shall continue to keep the Passover. They shall not be foreigners in the Lord's presence whether they are Hebrew or, like us, a part of the riffraff. Appreciate how taking communion requires you to understand the gospel. Of this meal, no unbeliever can truly eat it, as we see alluded to in verse 48. Often, especially in the time of Christer, you know, Christmas, Easter, yet people try to eat. Who shouldn't be eating? They think it's a good idea. But the Bible makes clear, if you don't discern the body, if you don't get the point of Passover, if you don't get what the lamb's sacrifice was all about, if you come to this meal with uncircumcised heart, it's better to refrain. For there is nothing for you here. You really can't have communion that God has created in the ultimate Passover meal. This is why St. Augustine said in chapter 6 of his commentary on the Gospel of John, Believe, Christian, Believe, and you have eaten already. He understood what the Passover was actually getting at, that it's faith in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world for all who believe in him with circumcised and who are circumcised in heart. They can truly have communion with him, even if they are the foreigners of the world and the mixed multitude of the world. And so as we part from this glorious chapter in Scripture, realize we have just looked over the course of multiple weeks, the crowning jewel of the Lord's salvation, the Old Testament, 
It's almost like this is the beginning of the bridal march. And when we get to Mount Sinai, that's the wedding ceremony in one sense. And so ask yourself, do you understand? Do you discern what God did for you and I in this moment, what this moment means for you, what this moment actually points to? Do you see how this chapter foreshadows and anticipates the work of Christ? Do you, please see this. Do not let this imagery be foreign to you. There is life here. There is a God who is a watchman in the darkness here. There is a God who, is a, who cares for you in death here. There is redemption here. There is forgiveness here. There is love here. There is sacrifice here. There is salvation to be found here. Jesus, when he sat at last with his disciples at the Passover in the Gospel of Luke, you can find it in Luke chapter 22, verses 15 and 16, said, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Christ knew what he must suffer. Not only death by crucifixion, but also, in some sense, an abandonment by his father, the firstborn of all creation. He needed to become the substitute for sinners on the cross. He knew the meaning of the prophecy by his herald, John the Baptist, when he declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Little did his disciples know, however, in this moment, as they celebrated Passover with him on that night, roughly a millennium and a half earlier, that this word of the Lord had witnessed and overseen the previous Passover. He knew as he oversaw that night of the Passover that it would later point to him as ultimate fulfillment as the sacrificial offering. He was the Lord who saw the door blood on the doorposts in Egypt and passed over the firstborn children inside, knowing that he was the actual lamb's blood that would ultimately save them when time would arrive. He is the incarnate Lord who would mark the cross with his blood bearing the judgment himself. He is the God who declares, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. He is the Lamb of God. Be a foreigner no longer. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the awesome Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the sacrifice. We thank you that even in the darkened hour in which we live, in which even our own rulers are utterly godless in what they promote and what they celebrate, that we look forward to having a greater feast day, an eternal feast in your presence, Lord we thank you that there will be one day where our eyes will see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and we will partake of all the grandeur of what you have prepared for us. 
You are a good and gracious God. Let us hold fast to the faith. Let us stay inside. Let us apply the Lamb's blood. Let us understand the sacrifice of the firstborn of all creation. Let us, Lord, be faithful in the darkened hours of our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let us take a moment to quietly and privately confess our sins before the Lord. <laughs> 